Hello and welcome to Sport Unlocked, the podcast dissecting the week's sports news issues, going behind the headlines. And if you've not really hit subscribe, we're really grateful if you could do so, so you can hear from myself, Rob Harris from the Associated Press, and alongside me as ever, Martin Ziegler from the Times and Tarek Panja from the New York Times. And we are beginning yet again with racism in football, but this time an incident that particularly seemed preventable. England play in the World Cup qualifier in Hungary and Hungary were already served with that sanction to play two games behind closed doors. But because that was a UEFA sanction, they don't apply until next year. They weren't enforced for this game, which, although it's European World Cup qualifying, officially comes under the jurisdiction of FIFA. This seems an absolute mess of a situation. UEFA, although they're not the official organisers of the World Cup qualifiers, that, that's FIFA, they are uh, involved in them. For example, they um, look after the commercial interests of, of the matches on FIFA's behalf. They um, take the, the leading role in the scheduling. So it's not as though they're completely um, uninvolved in this. And it's, it's just bizarre. And it, it is something that the authorities are going to have to address if, if you're going to have one uh, incident of racism in one competition and effectively um, that means it, it sort of com- doesn't apply in, in, in another competition a few weeks later. I mean, it, the, the other interesting factor in this is when and if charges are brought against the Hungarian Football Federation by FIFA is whether they can use the UEFA thing to show that they're effectively reoffending. I think as as the the rules stand, they probably can't actually do that, which again is 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 bizarre and and should be changed. And the illogical nature of it is that Hungary being punished for racist abuse that took place at the Euros by UEFA, but the sanction starts a lot more punitive. It's not imposed straight away. It's only enforced next year in the Nations League. But the whole reason to actually sanction hungry like this and to order the stadium to be closed is to deal with racist fans now which in terms of protecting players in their workplace then you would think in their next game that hungry hosted visiting players wouldn't have to be facing any home fans who could subject them to abuse i think what struck a lot of people here is for all of football bodies like fifa and uefa's talk of zero tolerance hungry which was banned for fan behaviour during the Euros, homophobic, racist, whatever, were able to play an important World Cup qualifier in a stadium full of fans. And I dare say, Rob, you and I talked about this before the event with inevitable consequences. You almost knew that this was going to happen. You know, that's what strikes me as just kind of sad and really depressing, that... These governing bodies are simply unable to act here. I'd love to know why UEFA's stadium ban could not be extended to these European qualifiers that are, that are you know, run under the auspices of FIFA, but it is the UEFA qualifying zone. You know, is this uh, an issue because FIFA and UEFA don't have a great relationship at the moment or something else? They should be joined up, surely, when it comes to matters like this, if it's sort of fan violence you know, or discrimination in stadiums, etc. It shouldn't matter which sanctioning body is, is running the game. 
I mean, the, the whole issue of um, Eastern European football being sort of taken over by a sort of nationalistic element who are um, often um, have a racist element, often have a homophobic element, is a really, really uh, urgent issue for football to, to tackle. I don't know quite how they do it, but it can't just be looking at um, you know individual bands and stuff like that. There's going to be a much more strategic approach to this because it's um, it, it can't just go on like this. Otherwise, it, every every match is, is going to throw up a similar thing, um, especially if they feel they're making a sort of political point in it, and you know they they are sort of there's this far right element. They probably welcome the bands, so. We, I think football needs to really try and have a, a proper look at this and come up with a better strategy. And of course, Hungary are at the heart of the FIFA and UEFA decision-making process. Sandor Sarni is on the leading bodies of both, Executive Committee of UEFA, the Council of FIFA, and he's a vice president of both FIFA and UEFA as well. So he's at the heart of decision-making. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, Eastern European countries have similar positions of responsibility. Um, I know there's a, there's a feeling that they think they're they're unfairly treated and unfairly labelled as as sort of that their fans are sort of racist in the in the, in the majority, which I, I think nobody's suggesting that. Just that they've got a, a significant problem with a minority, but. Um, they definitely have will have an influence in the decision making process. That's for sure. Hungary, particularly with UEFA, have a very very close relationship. They've had you know important events there recently. Not least um, one of the Euro hosts, the, the 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 women's Champions League final in twenty nineteen. Other other games as well. They're particularly close football association to to UEFA, Sandor Chani, the, the president of the Hungarian Federation. He sits on the UEFA Executive Committee. He's also a UEFA representative on the FIFA Council. I think you and I both know that a lot of members rely on Chani um, often when there, there are these kind of overseas trips or sort of a FIFA Council meeting in various parts of the world. Um, he's a billionaire banker and, and as a result of that, he's able to uh, access, you know, private jet, and he uses that to to travel to these FIFA meetings or, or other parts of the world on football business, and and some of the other officials enjoy joining him on those. And again, you know, perhaps nothing nothing wrong with it, but when it comes to maybe punishing an FA or 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 an association that you're especially close to, these personal relationships may have an impact on, on, on the decisions you take. And I guess this goes again to the heart of these governance issues that we've talked about over the last few weeks, uh, whether FIFA or UEFA have too many responsibilities, maybe they should be broken down. Maybe the governance and disciplinary function should be completely independent. I think this situation shows once again that perhaps it should. Well, let's hear now from PR Power, who's the executive director of the Anti-Discrimination Affair Network, and they do advise UEFA on such cases. For us, this was a match where the risk of racism should have been foreseen. 
the record of, of Hungary and people inside Hungarian stadiums across the Euro this summer was a bad one. You know, there were four incidents, perhaps five incidents. Uh, and, of course, UEFA sanctioned them with a ban behind closed doors for three matches and then suspended one. Uh, so given their, their very recent history, a lot more people should have known. And I think in the end, one has to say that it should have been played behind closed doors, regardless of who was involved in regulating this versus the, the regulations that are imposed by, by UEFA. It's quite easy. It happens, that continuity of, of, of regulation happens when it comes to doping. It happens when it comes to match fixing. There will not be a doping case that is not shared internationally. The ban is not shared internationally. We saw that with Kieran Trippier, for example, here in England. A similar sort of procedure should have been applied. And I think in the end, for us, it just tells us the way in which some governing bodies are seeing racism as still as a, as a fairly low priority. They see it as something that's been happening for generations and may well continue for generations. And so therefore their ability to create change is limited the mechanisms that they have to, to or the levers that they have to, to create change are limited. Uh, but in actual fact, you know, if there was a governing body that took a 360 perspective on these issues uh, and thought about what would be effective rather than just what was administratively possible, I think we'd, we'd be able to create a lot more change. I think I also have to see that, I, uh, that we, we noted what uh, the FA were doing around the match we knew that their people were being more vigilant and you have to sort of give credit to them. I have to give some sort of acknowledgement to the Hungarian FA who uh, used their coach to issue messages before the match and the Hungarian communication department did quite a lot. But the solutions to these sorts of problems are out there. It's really frustrating when we see people not taking them up. It's really frustrating actually that having to deal with the same cycle of, of issues every Every late summer, every autumn, whether it's clubs or national uh, teams playing in competitions, going to certain countries and the prospect of them being abused uh, is high. This is a cycle that, that should have been cut out a generation ago, but it still persists and, and there really isn't the will at the moment to deal with it in the way in which we'd want to deal with it. PR Power there from the Fair Network. Thanks to Piara for sending in his insight after the racist abuse faced by England players in Hungary on Thursday night. Well, later on in the show, we'll be turning to matters of FIFA and UEFA affecting player release, the other big issue that's been surrounding these World Cup qualifiers. But of course, the last week we've seen the end of the summer transfer window all those big deals, particularly from the Premier League clubs, Martin. I sort of have this loathing of, the, of deadline day of the transfers for various reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, thank goodness it's all gone. And the Premier League completely outspent everybody else put together just about, um, certainly in terms of net spending, which uh, shows the, really that the balance of power has shifted even more in the direction of the, the English teams. And that's something terrible. We actually both ended up writing on without realising it about the uh, the power of the uh, super clubs in this transfer window, the power of those state-owned clubs who can be completely resistant to the pandemic and even turn down bids up to, what, 
200 million euros if they even existed from Real Madrid for uh, Kylian Mbappe. Yeah, I think we also have to maybe um, redefine who the super clubs are. It certainly isn't based on this window. Barcelona, for example, is it? This is a club that was was just on fire, just trying to get rid of anyone it could to try and balance its books. That's not the behaviour of a, a super club, I'd say. Then what? We'd look at Juventus. Juventus signed Manuel Locatelli, really impressive midfielder for Italy during the Euros from Sassuolo and isn't going to pay a penny for him for the first two years, probably because it can't afford to do that. And the remainder of his not-so-rich fee, which is about, what, 30 million euros, will be spread over a number of years. And it got rid of Cristiano Ronaldo while writing down nearly 15 million euros along the way as it as it sent him to Manchester United. So that, for me, isn't super club um, behaviour. This is almost clubs in financial dire straits. When we're talking about super clubs, I think the moment, one moment I believe was the Champions League final last year. Chelsea owned by Roman Abramovich beating Manchester City owned by the brother of the ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Um, Man City along the way beating PSG which are owned by the state of Qatar along the way that year. And for me, PSG were the most interesting team in this window. They almost didn't care how much um, players cost, how much they had to spend in salaries. They just kept going. They bought a bunch of players, Ramos, Vinald, and of course Messi, who their clubs could not afford to keep them on the salaries that they wanted in, in some of the cases and others they couldn't. They were easily able to pay whatever they needed to for that. And then they added a few others. And you, Rob, you alluded to it. I think the most interesting element of this transfer window was the transfer that didn't happen. Real Madrid bid what would have been the second highest fee ever paid for a player, Kylian Mbappe, four months before he could negotiate a free transfer. Under normal circumstances, any other club, they would you almost have to. Like if you're a listed company, for example, it's your it's your duty to shareholders probably. To, to to do the right financial trade here. Um, Paris Saint-Germain decided, well, no, we want this guy to be in that forward line with Messi and Neymar, whether he signs or not, whether he goes for free or not next year. They didn't even bother replying to Real Madrid. You know, this is a real smack in the face for that great Real Madrid. And just one final point on that. That, that bid, that massive offer from Real Madrid, I think was also a piece of theatre just to show that the financial rules that apply to all the other clubs, if ever there was an FFP, if there's luxury tax, whatever these things are going to be, Paris Saint-Germain simply do not care about them and they're not going to be regulated in the same way. Um, and that's that's that was the story of the transfer window for me. Because also, as the window was about to close, PSG did actually sign another player as well. They got the defender Nuno Mendes in from Sporting Lisbon. Perhaps that would have got some more attention in any other time. It just showed they were just able to strengthen the squad um, so considerably and another of those late deals that showed the plight and the mess of Barcelona was Anton Griezmann going back to Atletico Madrid with the option for them to buy permanently for a fee of around 40 million euros only two years after they sold him for 120 million euros and they had to shed that wage bill didn't they? Yeah I mean I think there's some good points there I, I guess PSG they don't really care 
if they lose a hundred million on Mbappe, if they can they can win the Champions League, which is, um, and I think that's what it's all about. That you know, they're prepared to sacrifice that if, if, just for the uh, increased likelihood they can win that trophy. So I mean, it, definitely good points around the state-owned clubs um, and also the the financial collapse of of the other old superpowers. But I also it is interesting though that Arsenal, Manchester United spending really heavily. They don't have that um, kind of financial backing that Man City and PSG and, and Chelsea have. But they do have the Premier League's TV income. Yeah, exactly, they're enormous, right? Sorry, I think Arsenal might have actually spent more on transfer fees than any other club in the world um, during the summer. Yeah, more than one hundred and fifty million pounds. Well, they probably need to, looking at where they are um, in the in the in the, uh, in the Premier League table. Where are they? Rock bottom. No goals scored either. That's uh, what one incredible start for them. And I think one of the things that does highlight the disparities between the leagues is just look at Spain's big three clubs: Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid. They were outspent in this transfer window by the three Premier League newcomers: Brentford, Watford, and Norwich. No, it's a, again, you know, absolute um, sign if ever there was one that the Premier League is in in a, in a world of its own as a, as a, as a as a competition. The others simply cannot keep up, and it's credit to the people who run the Premier League and also some structural reasons. The net spending element as well for the Premier League was just insane compared to the other big leagues, um, and we should almost not call them the Big Five. It should be the Premier League, and then another four leagues below them. There isn't a competition. And Deloitte, the accountant, the close of the transfer window, put that in stark terms. The the net spending of Premier League clubs in this summer window was 655 million euros. That's 10 times more than the next highest spending league, which was La Liga at 65 million. Then Serie A close behind at 61. And, and Bundesliga um, made, a, made a profit of of 40 million. Those Germans always managing to balance their books somehow. And I suppose, why not mention Liga? Really, it, it's not really in the conversation of Big Five, is it? It's Paris Saint-Germain and the rest had uh, a, a net spend of, of 15 million euros. And the figures that put into perspective just how resilient Premier League clubs have proved throughout the pandemic is if we look at the three transfer windows during the pandemic, so summer 2020, winter 2021, and now the summer 2021 window, the figures show the Premier League's net losses from transfers was 1.9 billion euros. Serie A clubs collectively lost 298 million euros. Liga, 127 million euros. Uh, Bundesliga, 8 million euros. And La Liga actually clubs made a profit of 200 million euros eventually. Um, So that's from... Um, spending of 737 million and getting back in 937 million. So shows Premier League could clubs could absolutely still spend, spend, spend by um, spending 3.265 million euros on transfers and only bringing back in 1.3 million euros. Yeah, I mean the I mean, the, the the FIFA report which came out this week and looking back on the, on the ten years. I actually thought, uh, in many ways, that the most shocking thing was the amount of money uh, that is now going into the pockets of of agents uh, and um, just how much. So in the last 10 years, 
English clubs alone have given 670 million to agents, and that's just talking about international transfers. Um, I mean, o overall, it's um, 3.5 billion US dollars has gone into in, gone to intermediaries in the last 10 years. It's just like it's money to go straight out of the game. I know we've, we've talked about this. I know agents are important, but it just seems like the 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 increase in payments to them has risen much much higher than transfer fees. We should we should spend a moment, really, as our colleagues on Sky Sports did on deadline day, to to shower agents in praise, to to congratulate all of them on the great work that they did, their importance to the marketplace. Football just wouldn't be the same without these wonderful agents. I'm sure you two would agree. On the agents, I think the most unsavoury aspect of that spending is where they're on all sides of the same deal or where they're brought into deals where they're not needed. For instance, a club that's already going to buy a player anyway and suddenly an agent's brought in. Whereas you do have some agents who do play a vital role, whether it's trying to find lower league players, clubs, and helping those who are sort of maybe drifting out the game or indeed probably as we saw with uh, Harry Kane, how you can uh, badly handle a transfer when you try to keep it within the family and uh, mess up the attempt to uh, force a way out without any proper strategy. Yeah, I mean, the Harry Kane probably writing the book on how not to do it uh, <laughs> in terms of getting a, a big money move elsewhere. Um, but it certainly chose the, the wrong club to the wrong chairman to try that with, with Daniel Levy. I mean, even a bit of uh, inside the media, the way one of those most significant moments was briefed very similarly just to two media outlets, which immediately you see other journalists getting pretty irate that perhaps they were kept out the loop on that bit of information. Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, that, that sort of that particular leak was absolutely meaningless anyway. It was just like saying what he'd said before. And, oh, he's, yeah, he's sticking to his guns. He's determined to go. He's asked to leave again. Sort of, so what? Um, nothing had actually changed in the previous eight weeks, as far as I can make out. And, yeah, it, it, as it turned out, Daniel Levy thought the same thing. And, uh, yeah, there he is, still there. Perhaps um, it's time for, we're seeing it maybe more and more, the European-style buyout clause in, in contracts as as, as players signed these you know the idea of Kane at the age he was at the club he was not had not won a trophy signing a six-year contract and then having the ambitions he does without a buyout clause now seems um a little bit strange obviously on the day you sign you really make yourself very popular with with Tottenham fans and then you only realize the error you've made I don't know when was it three, three years ago three years down the line I want to go and he sort of shackled into into this contract that he he signed himself, so maybe buyouts are the, are the the way forward. Yeah, I mean, player power is a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And you know, we're seeing a little bit of that with the um, some people trying to flex their muscles in terms of the international release of players uh, for World Cup qualifiers, particularly in South America, which are red list countries. Uh, as far as the UK is concerned, and the Premier League clubs refusing it almost unanimously to let any of their players go to these. It's been um, a sort of bit of a crisis for FIFA. They've been unable to resolve it. We now have a situation where some of the countries involved, Mexico, Paraguay and Chile, 
saying that they uh, launching formal complaints for FIFA. They, they want them to impose the five-day rule so that their players can't play for their clubs and domestic or European matches during those, the five days after the international break. Um, it's just, and we're going to have this again in October, by the looks of it, unless something can be resolved. Which can only be resolved if England changes its quarantine requirements, which is ultimately about protecting health. One thing lost very often in this whole discussion is the red list exists because the government doesn't want people going there. It's very much only go if you really have to. And going for sport is not absolutely vital. One of the things we did see over the weekend was that La Liga appeal to CAS to try to get the um, mandatory release stopped. There's a lot of frustration from the wider umbrella organisations, whether it's those representing clubs or leagues, the fact that La Liga went it alone. And of course, whether they had any jurisdiction to even mount that case, CAS threw it out. FIFA did say it was a verdict that showed the full legality of their player release, which actually Cass uh, told us they hadn't actually given the reasons for the decision. What we've seen, though, is that was very much an appeal based on the scheduling and the fact that the third game of the triple header was being played on the Thursday night in South America and La Liga had games back on the Saturday again, quite separate from the more justifiable position of the Premier League and the clubs. The fact is, any players going have to quarantine for 10 days on return and not just quarantine um, at home or the training ground, but potentially in a government-ordered hotel with no means of uh, training at all. Yeah, Rob, the, the La Liga appeal to Cass, like you say, annoyed actually a lot of their fellow leagues as well because they sort of thought they were going to fail. In that, I think Tebas, Javier Tebas, the, the La Liga president, he's got to be in his bonnet about Cass in general. And I think he almost used this knowing they were going to lose, just to show how FIFA and, and governing bodies tend to win most of the cases. He thinks CAS is is almost on the side of these governing bodies and isn't a fair arbiter. And I think that was one of the points. But it was done. It was a stupid example, I think, this one, because it, it had, as far as he's concerned, it's a bit of an own goal. Because it's, it's given FIFA this this um, moral high ground, I suppose. But the really important aspect here, which is away from CAS, is FIFA's own rules. It's kind of a boring element. It's called Article 9 of Annex 1 of RSTP. And this is about player release. Now, I, I will read it um, now. It says, players complying with a call-up from their national association under terms of this article shall resume duty with their clubs no later than 24 hours after the end of the period for which they had been released. This period shall be extended to 48 hours if the represented team's um, activities took place in a different confederation to the one in which the player's club is registered. Now, so you have to be back with your club, with, with your club within a day or two days. A quarantine hotel for 10 days is not with your club. It, it's essentially a hotel. So without going to cash, without any of this, forcing the clubs are even punishing them for not letting them release players. People probably, probably, it could be argued, be be breaching its own own regulations. So it'd be interesting to see how this one falls out. Maybe FIFA will um, punish clubs, and then we're going to see more action at CAS and other places like that. Yeah, I don't think it's by any means certain that FIFA will 
impose these sanctions, these punishments, um, because I, I think they were desperate to try and avoid doing so for those, that very reason, Tariq. Um, I, I mean, the other interesting thing Ray October is that the London Marathon is taking place there and it's been delayed. And um, they are considering, the government is seriously considering giving exemptions to elite athletes from red list countries to take part in that without quarantining. So I, you could absolutely argue if they're going to do that for runners, why would not do that for footballers? Um, and that's a very fair point. I don't think you can have a, a twin track approach. I think that would be grossly unfair. We do get different perspectives. The uh, Brazilian journalist Martin Fernandez writing for Globo saying actually European leagues are trying to sabotage um, South American football and calling for English clubs to be punished. So that's certainly perspective down there because they'll be looking at their countries and World Cup qualification being on the line. And a bit like as we come back to the transfer market discussion, it looks like these wealthy leagues, the Premier League, thinking they're the ultimate force. But actually... Football does revolve ultimately around club football, doesn't it? The hearts of the communities. You're quite quite Rob. Also, football revolves around self-interest. Now, if I'm a, the Brazilian FA or a Brazilian fan or even a Brazilian journalist like our esteemed friend Martin, I'd be doing exactly the same. Be arguing that side, and this this is the this is the issue with the game. There aren't. There's a calendar crunch. Something has to give. Someone's going to lose out. The clubs will say, "Well, we're we're paying." You know these huge amounts of, of salaries, and, and we've got every point in the Premier League or La Liga or every any other decision division. Sorry, is worth a certain amount, and it, it distorts the competition. And equally, the World Cup qualifiers are distorted if the players, if the national, if the national teams can't call up the players that they that they want, the best players for the team. So something, something, something has to give here. Um, and this is this is a you know a crisis that perhaps cooler minds cleverer minds could have averted by coming up with something creative rather than this this battle that we find ourselves in. And it's not just the Premier League in 10 days, it's across Europe, certainly Serie A and, and um, La Liga as well. You wait for being very quiet in all this. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, w- One interesting thing, which, which I, um, I've been kind of expecting uh, people to try and explore from the British government is whether they could insist on double vaccines for any players going to red list countries and then coming back. Um, but they've been very keen on that uh, to try and get that done somehow. And I thought this might be a, a way they could sort of at least get it in for a, a section of, of the um, professional football community. Uh, and it would in many ways sort of make sense that you're not just relying on a on a negative test you're 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 showing you you've, you've been had two jabs because i mean as we as i wrote at the weekend there are a fair proportion of professional footballers in the premier league and the efl are not vaccinated um there are various sort of uh, conspiracy theories doing the rounds on whatsapp groups and um you know, there, there are different reasons why they choose not to be vaccinated, but it's a, it's an issue for some clubs, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, some of those conspiracies centering around the fact that the vaccines have been put into use very quickly, suggesting it's still experimental. Well, no, they've actually been approved by the main scientific agencies, particularly in Europe and, and the UK and, and the States as well. 
And we look at a situation like Granite Xhaka, the Arsenal midfielder who tested positive while away with uh, Switzerland. And the Swiss FA said that he hadn't been vaccinated. Perhaps some Arsenal fans might have been wishing he hadn't been playing at all last weekend and they'd been isolating. I think he was isolating on the pitch, wasn't he? Well, he was off the pitch very quickly, fortunately, for uh, a lot of the players in terms of being dealing with close contact. But it you know, it shows here's a big-name player going away for his, with his country, travelling, but not vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, it's he won't be the only one, that's for sure. I mean, when you've got somebody like Matt Letizier who's you know, tweeting the fact that it claims that there's been 15,000 vaccine-related deaths in Europe, I mean, you only have to look at the sort of you know, fact check websites. It's absolutely unproven such stuff. And yet, you know, you've got, you got a, a former in England international posting that on Twitter. I even got a uh, very angry email from, from one reader who uh, accused me of being a patsy for a big pharmaceutical corporations. So it clearly makes people very angry indeed, this subject. Ziggs, you're a patsy for many people, but never a pharmaceutical concern. I can I can confirm that, folks. Just a, a patsy for the Sport Unlocked podcast. <laughs> well, I'm sure no one would accuse Arsene Wenger of being a patsy in his current role at FIFA. That's Chief of Global Football Development, but the former Arsenal manager seems to be more in a role of advancing Gianni Infantino's plans for biennial World Cups. What would that mean every single Club season ends with a tournament, be it a World Cup or a Continental Championship. That would seem to be at odds with what Arsene Wenger said when he was actually Arsenal manager in 2005. He was complaining about the African Cup of Nations, saying we've asked them to organise it at least every four years and during the summer. He said it's still every two years and during the winter. I don't know why. 2012, he said I'd rather plan without an African Cup of Nations every two years. Now, though, he's this big proponent of the Infantino vision and it's gone down really badly with UEFA. Alexander Sheffrin, the UEFA president, has written to the Football Supporters Europe executive director, Ronan Evine, who originally sent a letter to Sheffrin raising their concerns. And Sheffrin said he has grave concerns about these FIFA plans. And he's particularly said that considering the major impact this reform may have on the whole organisation of football, there is widespread astonishment that FIFA appears to be launching a PR campaign to push its proposal, whilst any such proposals haven't been presented to confederations, national associations, clubs, leagues, players, coaches and the football community. Well, FIFA themselves said that there is no predetermined objectives and FIFA has an open mind in the search for better solutions for the common good of the game. But certainly the way Wenger is going about talking to Le Keep during the week, it does look like a very concrete proposal. And what the Football Supporters Europe group have said that actually, if this plan came to fruition, it would have an adverse impact on the balance between local, domestic, continental and international competitions and pointing out that actually the game's already unequal and expensive to watch and doubling the number of World Cups, they say, will not solve any of these problems. In fact, they'll make them inevitably worse. 
So this is going to be an issue that rumbles on, particularly as FIFA steps up this campaign to double the frequency of World Cups, both men's and women's. And we hear more from the likes of Arsene Wenger. So that's going to be one to watch in the coming weeks. Now, Martin, you've got a Cass doping verdict to uh, talk about, which has been really interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. Um the issue of Shelby Houlihan, the American runner who um, missed the Olympics because she tested positive for nandrolone and um, she banned for four years, appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, claiming it was all down to a contaminated pork burrito. And we've uh, we've now had the full written reasons why Cass refused her appeal. Um, Sixty-three mentions of the word burrito in that in that uh, report. Tarek, have you, did, did, did you notice that? Yes, I did uh, um, a similar search, and I was astounded by the number of. T- it made me hungry as well, to be honest with you. And because I'm not an elite athlete, I can have as many burritos as I like. But but just seriously, in terms of this, there was um, there was huge outcry, particularly in America, when when Houlihan was was barred and suspended. Um, ruled against and it, the thing with Cass it takes quite a while weeks sometimes months for the full reasoned decision to be published as it was this week you know I'll give you an example her, her lawyer and you can imagine him saying this in my view what has happened is entirely unjust he said at the time this result is going to live me live with me for, for the rest of my career because I know Shelby didn't do anything wrong and she's banned and it's not just her lawyer you had someone like Travis Tiger, the, the head of the US anti-doping agency, saying, yes, you're responsible for what you take, but no reasonable person would ever think that you, can, you can't eat meat or use an otherwise allowable medication. A system that punishes those people is not a fair or sustainable system. But then you look at the reasoned decision, and it's pretty categoric. Cass said there's zero or close to zero probability that a burrito led to Shelby Houlihan's failed drug test. Um, now, other people have raised this as well. If this athlete wasn't American, imagine if he was a Russian. He'd be saying, screaming about throwing the book at um, the, the, the person who failed the drug test, not believing a word of them. It seemed that at the time, because it was this lady called Shelby, um, you know, an all-American um, girl, um, you know, everyone thought, oh, you know, poor Shelby. This this is this is an outrage, but this is what happens in failed um, doping cases. She she's used this um, burrito excuse, and th- there was a panel of scientists use all sorts of experts, and I just want to repeat that close to zero probability that a burrito led to this. Now, are these people going to do exactly the same thing as the next Shelby type of person tests? positive for, for, for a band. And it's that lack of outrage from the US side that is most striking. Yes, it's very different from something like Russia, which was a big state-sponsored doping scheme, widespread. This is an individual who's been found guilty, but nevertheless, it's an individual trying to find a way of covering up the positive, finding an excuse, and ultimately it being found to be complete nonsense by Cass. Yeah, and the story, uh, Martin, just on the story, was also quite strange because not only did she eat this pork burrito but it was by accident she said the athlete would have had to have been served pork at the food truck despite ordering beef which is what she said happened she ordered a so she's been extremely unlucky then according to her story she ordered beef got pork and not just any pork 
uncastrated boar, which had this this um, substance in it, which is uh, similar to a marker for nandrolone, a, a banned substance. You know, and and this this boar entered the food food chain through completely different channels than normal um, pork in the U.S. Like there were so many um, almost impossibilities, a catalogue of improbable situations that led to this positive test. Uh, and, and there were all these people, you know, flying the flag, saying that you know they didn't, they should have waited surely for this reasoned decision because people are looking absolutely. A bit silly. I mean, if you look back at. Um... She her her uh, performances improved remarkably between twenty eighteen and uh, twenty twenty. Um, so she took something like eleven seconds off her best time. Uh, and there's an interesting tweet. She was asked um, a, about a year ago, uh, "You're by somebody. You're much leaner and more muscular now uh, than you were in in twenty sixteen. What's changed?" And she replied. A few things have changed in those years. My diet has improved. Well, <laughs> clearly not enough. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the secret. More burritos to our, for our elite level athletes. <laughs> burritos all round when we do meet up to eat next. Well, great contributions. Thanks for all the insight. Huge variety of issues and big ones ongoing as well, particularly next week, the European Club Association meeting, big UEFA meetings as well. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Any feedback, we're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Sport Unlocked. And if you've got any feedback, sportunlockedpod at gmail.com. You can always find us on social media as well, personally. And whatever you're doing in the days ahead, whatever sport you're watching, hope it's enjoyable. And thank you again for listening. Goodbye for now. 